Okay. Hi, everybody. Sorry for the, the, the running around and tweaking things. We were having some issues with the Zoom feed being very echoey. And then I found out that the reverb on this speaker was accidentally turned on. So hopefully it's a little better now. It is better. Okay, good. All right. If you have your worship guide, please turn it to page 9. Our text for today is in Acts 17, which is obviously not in Genesis 1 through 3. You know, we've been doing this Genesis 1 through 3 series. Um, we're taking a short break from that today because this is such a special day in the life of our church. I wanted to take us to a specific passage uh, that I have, I have been going to myself and thinking about myself. And I believe that God has something for us today, Hope Presbyterian, in this passage in Acts 17. So if you would, stand for the reading of God's word. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where, he, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at our objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else. From one man he made the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. 
In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for speaking to us through the words of a book that you illuminate, that you lighten up in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that in this time and in this space, we would, we would experience just that, your Holy Spirit illuminating your word. Lord, I pray that we would hear what, exactly what it is that you have to say to us today. God, I pray that we would be stirred up in our affections for you. And even for the way we have affection and pay attention to our time and place. Lord, thank you for our church. Thank you for what you're doing. We pray that you would do that work right now. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, so it's our first Sunday in a new location. It's like the first Sunday of a new era, a new epoch, if you will, in our church. So I just wanted to say the word epoch. Um, <laughs> but seriously, this is, this is a big deal. We met at the previous space for uh, close to 14 years. And uh, we hope to be here for a very long time at Warner. Um, so why this passage, though? What is, what is it about this story of Paul in Athens that is worthy of us stopping the series that we're in and camping out here for one day? Uh, well, the big idea of this story, well, the big idea of Paul's speech at the Areopagus is found in this uh, verse 26 where he says that God marks out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of the lands where people live so that people would reach out for him and find him, though or yet, or maybe even because, he is not far off. That was the big idea of Paul's speech to the Athenians, and it's Stands that verse stands as really the focus of the big idea of this passage in Acts telling the story of Paul's speech. Luke, Paul's companion, the same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you've seen the movie That Thing You Do, and anytime the preacher says Luke, there's a voice in your head that goes, Luke, who's Luke? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch the movie That Thing You Do. That's an aside. Becca's shaking her head at me. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> Luke. The guy who wrote 
the Gospel of Luke, also wrote Acts. He was an associate of Paul. So when we read the book of Acts, we're reading the story of the Holy Spirit continuing the ministry of Jesus in that first generation of the early church. But we're also reading Luke's account of it. So just like we do in Genesis with Moses, we need to think about why is Luke telling the story in this particular way? Well, we, the way that Luke gives the account of Paul's experience in Athens, the focus, not just of Paul's speech, but of Luke's account of that speech, is still these verses. That God has appointed the time and the place for all people, your age and your address, so that for the purpose of people reaching out to God, and finding him because, or yet, or although, he is not far away. That is something that we need to be reminded of today in our church as we have moved spaces and as we are continuing as a church in this particular time in our city, which is kind of hard. We need to be reminded that our time and our place have been predetermined by God from eternity past for a reason. And that reason is so that people would reach out for God and find Him. Because He's not far. So, that's the big idea. God determines times and places in our life, in the life of every person everywhere, so that people would reach out for him and find him. But I want to I, I want to take that big idea and I, and I want us to sort of just walk around it and examine it through Luke's storytelling, through Paul's experience, through what we know of Athens. And I think we'll see just how God is applying this truth, that he is the master of time and place for us. So first... Let's think about the way that Luke talks about Athens, the city of Athens. In verse 17, he says that the city was full of idols. Now, any first century reader or early church reader who had ever been to Athens would know that this was quite an understatement from Luke. Luke is being, uh, un is being understated and perhaps gracious when he says that Athens was full of idols. Every Greco-Roman city had idols or pagan temples or regional gods. That was normal. But Athens in the first century uh, was like, it was sort of out of control. It was almost like a Disneyland for pagan idol worship. One, uh, I, I think he was in the third century, a geographer, in the third century, I can't remember his name, but he said that it was easier to meet a god or a goddess in Athens than it was to meet a person. Uh, Athens, in ancient Athens in this time, idols outnumbered people three to one. So for every person in Athens, there were three idols, icons, statues somewhere in the city, and most of them were organized in the main, main drag part of town. So when Luke says the city is full of idols, he literally means full. 
Everywhere you look, there's gods and goddesses and statues. Not to mention that at this time in Athens, this is about 500 years past Athens' prime. So if you think about, when we think about Athens, it's the city of the great philosophers, you know, Plato, Socrates, all that stuff. That was 500 years before this. So the ruins that we see in Athens today, like the Acropolis and the Parthenon, all that was there in Paul's time. Now, when Luke says in verse 21, and it's kind of this parenthetical statement, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That, that might be a little bit pejorative on Luke's part. Sort of like if you have, uh, if you talk to or you are a parent of teenage kids, or you talk to one and they say, all my kid does is spends all their time scrolling on their phone looking for some new thing. That's the way Luke is talking about this. He's, he's expressing that the Athenians had a kind of, uh, a, a, a kind of uh, fix with novelty in their culture. They're bored with the three-to-one gods in their city. Athens at this time was, it talks about the uh, Areopagus, where Paul gave his speech. In some translations, it might say Mars Hill. That's what we would call it, uh, translated into English. The Areopagus, or Mars Hill, was like, it was like uh, the town hall, but also like the, a university, and also like a TED Talk all rolled into one. It was the governing court in Athens. Athens, even though it was a Roman city, retained some of its independence, and this was the court of the city. But it was also the place where all the philosophers gathered and exchanged their ideas. And there was a culture there of sort of being over it. Uh, we've heard everything. Tell us something new. This boredom, uh, this addiction, if you will, to novelty. This was Athens at the time. It was the place where the, the, the maturation or the logical conclusion of all Greco-Roman ideas and ideals had, had reached their fullness in Athens and the leaders of the city were a little bit over it and they were turning to novelty. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that there probably could have been a big, big billboard in the main drag in Athens that said, keep Athens weird. Uh, I think there's obvious parallels. It's not a one-to-one, -one, but there's something about the way Luke describes Athens that reminds me of Portland. Uh, we are one of the most uh, highly educated cities in the country, definitely near the top. In fact, one of the most, uh, if you're just talking about theological education here in Portland, we have Warner, you can get a great theological education. We have Multnomah University, we have Western Seminary, uh, we have University of Portland. All these places have good theology programs. Uh, there's even more than that. Portland Bible College was a big deal for a while. Uh, there is, uh, Concordia was here and closed. Couldn't fill it up. But there, if you want a theological education in Portland, it's easy to find one. If, if, if you want to go to college in Portland, there's all kinds of avenues and inroads to do that. Uh, we are a city full of idols. 
if you if you are looking if you find a, an idea or a religion or a philosophy or a worldview or something you read about it in a book you can find people in Portland that hold to that ideology that are loyal to that this is not just a ideologically diverse city this is an ideologically um, could I say bloated and I say that out of love uh, we have it here. And it's a bit like Athens. We're, we're a bit over it. And at least in the stereotype. Stereotypes have a little bit of truth in them. We have a thing for novelty here in Portland. This is not a place where you can, you know, this is an unlikely, just by cultural standards, this is an unlikely city for a church to grow in that claims to have the corner on absolute truth. And that corner is Jesus. And he's the one and only. It doesn't jive with the culture. Just like Paul in Athens was definitely out of place. So that's the way that Luke talks about Athens. And that should, that should catch our interest as Portlanders. Now let's think about the way that Luke talks about Paul. He says, uh, well first of all, where this falls in the book of Acts, this is Paul's second missionary journey. So Paul had already done one teaching tour, and it was a little bit shorter, and it ended with Paul coming back to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. That's in Acts 15. No, we're in Acts 17. So after that, Paul parted with his buddy Barnabas. He set out with a new buddy named Silas. First place they went to is Philippi. Now in Philippi, they experienced really fruitful ministry. It was going really well. Paul would usually start by going to the synagogue, start by talking with Jews and God-fearing Greeks there in the synagogue, and then move out from there. That's what he was doing. Now, in Philippi, uh, his message caused a little bit of a disturbance because there was a slave who was oppressed by an evil spirit uh, working as a fortune teller under the power of this evil spirit. Paul and his companions... Uh, cast this evil spirit out, and it made the person who owned the slave, uh, owned the slave, uh, angry because that was their source of income. And that started a ruckus, and Paul and Silas were sent to prison. Now you know the story of Paul and Silas in prison. They're singing hymns, remember that? And then there's an earthquake that happens. The chains fall off. The jailer is, oh no, everybody's gonna escape. Paul says, we're still here. The jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. All that happens. It's, it's a crazy experience in Philippi. But then after that, he, his companions urged him to move on to the next city. That was awesome, but it's a little tense here. Let's keep going. So they went to Thessalonica after that. This is at the beginning of Acts 17, our chapter. And in Thessalonica, Paul did what he always does. He goes to the synagogue, starts with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks and then moves out from there. And he had three weeks of fruitful, awesome teaching in the synagogue. People are coming to faith in Christ. There's momentum going on. This is like early days of a red-hot church plant. Things are awesome. And then some of the Jewish religious establishment gets upset with Paul, which is ironic because Paul was, in his own words, uh, a Jew of Jews. He is preaching Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And just like we saw in Jesus' story in Jerusalem, the Jewish establishment didn't like that. 
So they got some bad characters together and started a riot. And, oh, I forgot something. Pause on Thessalonica. Back to Philippi. I forgot that before Paul went to prison, this is important, him and Silas were arrested. Luke says that they were, that they were beaten with rods and then severely flogged. So, now fast forward to Thessalonica. He's there, it's fruitful, but this riot starts. And I bet in Paul's mind, he's thinking, this is getting violent. I'm still healing from being, can you imagine being beaten with a rod? And then, not just flogged, severely flogged. So, Paul has already been through some trauma. So when the riot starts, his friends there in Thessalonica said, Paul, you gotta get out of here. And they help him uh, and Silas to escape. So they, having already been through this traumatic thing, we're out of here. And they escape and go 44 miles to the next city, Berea. In Berea, they start at the synagogue with the Jews, God-fearing Greeks. It goes really well. Red-hot church plant. This is awesome. It's growing. People are coming to faith. And then some of the rioters from Thessalonica show up. Uh, it's not good when a city has a riot. It's really not good when people from another city come into your city and start a riot. We might know something about that as well. <laughs> uh, they show up, and Paul's friends go, Paul, we're not doing this again. You're still, still he healing from your being beaten and flogged. Uh, you, you've been, already been through trauma. You've you got to get out of here. So this time, they, take, they put Paul with some, with some uh, Bereans who take him away. They sneak him out of the city. And this time, they don't just go 44 miles to the next city. They go 200 miles across water to Athens. We're going to go far enough away where this madness can't follow us anymore. So when Paul arrives in Athens, Paul is coming off three cities of traumatic experience. When Paul arrives in Athens, this is the first time in Paul's ministry in the book of Acts that he is alone. In Acts, he, since his conversion, he has always had a companion. Here, at the beginning of this story, here Paul shows up in Luke's account. He shows up still healing from his being beaten and flogged, coming off of a riot chasing him through two cities, going 200 miles across the water to hide out all alone. And then the opening verse, while Paul was waiting for his friends in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, Paul being a Jew, and Paul being a Jew who follows Jesus as the Messiah, a, a Christian, he would have been bothered by the idols. But Athens being idol bloated, he would have been really bothered. But Paul coming off of uh, three cities of trauma, all by himself, tired, and still wounded and healing, he was greatly distressed. It's important for us to read Paul in this account in that way because this is how Luke frames it. So here's Paul in weakness in number one city for not being open to Christianity unless it's a novelty. That's this story. Now, I don't know anyone here who has been beaten with rods or severely flogged for our faith lately. But I do know that our church has had a hard couple of years. I do know that we're small. 
I do know that we don't have, we're not, we're not like the new hip church in town with all the momentum and all the cool stuff, which I actually think that's really great. But we, we are not coming into this place by the world's standards and strengths. We as a church are in a place of, of relative weakness. We're small. We've had some people move. Uh, we, we, it's, we're going to have to, we have some money and savings, so we're doing good, but we, we got about two years before we need to be financially self-sustainable. Pressure's on by the world's standards, and we're weak. So there's some parallels that I see. It's not a one-to-one, but I think you see what's going on. Now, consider the way Luke tells the story of weak, wounded, all-alone Paul and novelty-addicted, bloated, highly intellectual Athens. Consider how he tells the story. Paul does what he always does. He starts at the synagogue. He starts with God's people. A place where Jesus, at least there was a foundation for talking about Jesus. He starts there. And at the same time, while he's proclaiming Christ in church, if you will, He's also talking to anyone he can outside of that. So he's in the marketplace. Paul is at the grocery store talking about Jesus. It says he's reasoning with people. He is actively involved with friends and neighbors outside of the church sharing Christ. In that moment, he just so happens to be overheard by a group of Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Now, Stoics and Epicureans are very different. If you are into um, Star Trek, think about the original series. Spock was a Stoic and Bones was an Epicurean. So Epicureans were all about, life is all about avoiding pain and seeking pleasure. There's, There's no afterlife. The gods are far away. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. The Stoics were all about self control and reason, and God is in everything, but we're not really concerned with getting to heaven, we're more concerned with living a logical heavenly life now. So these two groups were the dominant groups in Athens that would have it out at the Areopagus. They would, they would, it was like a, uh, uh, this is a terrible analogy, but it's kind of, it, they were like having rat battles on the hill at Mars Hill. If you've seen Eight Mile, don't watch Eight Mile. Anyway. Let's move on, Charlie. These heavy hitters at the town hall TED Talk thing happen to hear Paul. And they say, huh, we haven't heard anything new in a while. We like new novel things. Let's invite this guy. Let's invite this guy who's hobbled over and bruised and all alone. Let's bring him to the Areopagus and see what this babbler has to say. Now, he's not being invited on friendly terms. If I was Paul, I would not think that these people were actually interested. I would think that I was walking into a bully trap. What does Paul say? Okay. So Paul shows up at the Areopagus by chance. And he begins to give a speech about Jesus. He starts with what he has in common with the Athenians. He starts with mutual affirmation. Now, the gospel always affirms and confronts culture. 
every culture, there are things that the gospel would affirm and things the gospel would confront. And Paul starts with affirmation. I see you're religious. I see that you had an idol to an unknown God. The thing that you're looking for, I am here to proclaim to you. And then Paul moves from joyful affirmation, common ground, to a humble confrontation. This is not the angry street preacher. This is a humble confrontation. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live by temples built by human hands. And I imagine maybe he looked around at the city full of temples and gods. And then he said, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all nations. That's confrontational. The Greeks at this time thought that they came from a different place than the rest of humanity. They thought they were genetically elite humans and everyone else was a barbarian. Paul's saying, no, we all came from one spot. There's one humanity. There's a brotherhood of man. He's confronting them. And then he goes on to give his thing about God appointing time and space so we would reach out for them. And then he does a thing that everybody who's ever done evangelism out in the open has been trained not to do. He starts with, and then ends with, this God is going to judge the world. And he's doing it through the man that he has raised from the dead. At that point, he's cut off. He doesn't get to speak anymore. Now, people didn't think different things about this, but I tend to think that Paul had more to say and that he was cut off early. And when you look at the speech that he has here, the beginning is awesome. He joyfully affirms. He humbly confronts. But when it comes time to land on the gospel of Jesus, not just that God is the judge, but God is also the one who opens his arms with radical grace to anyone who would come to him. And the man who rose from the dead, his name is Jesus. Paul never gets there. All in all, all things considered, this evangelistic speech, it's not very good. I think it's incomplete because Paul usually gives good speeches. But he doesn't nail it. So, pause. Weak, wounded, all alone Paul. A city that culturally, I, I think if I was Paul, I just would not see an inroad. Paul takes what he has, and in the moment he has been given, the best he knows how, he speaks up and begins with what people have in common and then moves toward Jesus. And he doesn't even get to finish. And what happens? It's incredible. This, is, this story has been set up for, to be a tragedy, a total failure. You would think it would end with, they laughed Paul, laughed Paul out of town, and he left ashamed because he didn't even tell the story right. He never even said Jesus. But it doesn't end that way. It ends with, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, the second century historian Eusebius tells us that Dionysius went on to become the first bishop of Athens. And we know from what else we've read in Paul, some things we've been talking about lately, uh, that the Greco, and what we know from history as well, the, the Greco-Roman world was highly 
hierarchical, patriarchal. And here's a woman who just happened to be there, couldn't have a seat on the Areopagus. No really cultural uh, influence. Maybe she was a wealthy woman, and that's why she was able to stand within hearing range. But now she becomes a follower of Paul right alongside someone who was a member there. And they both believed, and others. There were more. I think these two are mentioned because it shows that whatever happened in that moment happened with power. We have an elite, a cultural elite, who steps down from that privileged place to follow Paul, to join Paul's church, and he becomes a believer, and God goes on to use him in this incredible way. And then we have someone without cultural privilege who is elevated and follows Paul, the guy who repeatedly called women co-workers in the faith. She joins his church. She goes on to become a believer. Here, we not only see people coming to believe, we see a culture being overthrown by a kingdom, one of peace and of equity, one that is centered around Jesus Christ, not the latest idea, as king. Jesus as God's man who rose from the dead to renew all things in judgment and in salvation. And all of this comes down to, the, according to Luke, this little truth that God has determined the time and the place for all people so that people would reach out for God and find him because he's not far. So we see that God put Paul in Athens, in the synagogue, in the market. We see that God put uh, the people in the Areopagus that day, maybe when they were, had a time for a new speaker to come in. We see that God let the people in Athens over centuries and generations become bored with the greatest educational and philosophical systems of the world. God orchestrated all this so that Dionysius, Damaris, and others would come to Christ and find new life. Folks, our church's journey is not meaningless. Our move into this space is not meaningless. God has been waiting for millions and millions of years for us to get into this place on this Sunday. It's true. But there's something else here. This is where I, this is where I want to land us. God didn't just put Paul and Athens in this time and place so that the Athenians would reach for God and find him. God put Paul and the Athenians in this time and place so that Paul would reach for God and find him. God has put us as a church where we are in our place of weakness and in this new opportunity. Not just so that Portlanders would hear the gospel and come to faith, but so that we ourselves also would reach out for Jesus and be changed. Look at this passage we read in Isaiah earlier. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good. You will delight in the richest affair. 
Give ear, come to me, listen, that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. So God is inviting the people of Israel to return to him, come, accept his love, and he's pointing to the promised David that's going to come. He's pointing to Jesus. Then he says this, See, I have made him, the new David, Jesus, a witness to the peoples, and a ruler and commander of peoples. Think about Paul telling the Athenians about Jesus and saying that Jesus is the judge who's coming. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler of command and commander of the peoples. And then he says this, God says this, Surely you, will, you, Israel, you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Israel, you will do evangelistic outreach to the nations. Because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, He has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Do you see what God is telling Israel here? He's telling them that they need to reach out for Him. That the nations also need to reach out for Him. The nations will reach out for God when they hear the news about God's new David, Jesus Christ. But Israel, God's people, they reach out for God when they open their mouths and summon the nations to come. So think about Paul here. The Dionysius, Damaris, and their friends were not the only ones reaching for God in God's time and place. Paul also, by walking up that hill in his woundedness, and opening his mouth to probably the most academically and socially intimidating crowd he had faced yet in his ministry. And doing his best to proclaim Jesus, even though he didn't nail it like he usually does. In that moment, Paul was reaching out for God. And guess what? Paul also found him. Paul found the Holy Spirit coming in power to open up the eyes and ears and hearts of Dionysius, Damaris, and others. Paul experienced him. We know this even more because after this trip in Athens, Paul goes to Corinth. And it's in Corinth where Paul breaks his pattern of going first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. It's in Corinth, the next city, that Paul says, you know what? I believe God is calling me to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And it's in Corinth where God's, the fullness of God's call on Paul's life to be his apostle to the nations comes to actualization. So whatever God had for Paul's mission in time and place, Paul didn't grow up in his mission until after this experience, right after this experience. So I think again about our church. We want to see people in Portland come to Jesus, God's man who he rose from the dead, who's going to judge the world, who with open arms say, anyone come to me, anyone who's thirsty, come for forgiveness, come to eat and drink. We want to see that. But we ourselves also, look, look around. We want the Holy Spirit to come and join us here. We want to be filled with God. We want to know the joy of the Lord. And we want to know the, 
fullness of the mission that God has for us. It might be a church that's, you know, 15 years old or so. But there is a maturity, a missional maturity that God still has for us that we want to grow into. How do we get there? By reaching out for God. How do we do that? By here in this place and everywhere else we go, the best we know how, according to our abilities, we affirm the things that we have in common with our friends and neighbors in this city. But we don't stop there. We also, with humility, hold up Christ and let Christ confront the idolatry all around us. And then we do what I believe Paul intended to do because he does it everywhere else he gives a speech. We make an invite. And people might not believe right away. Dionysus and Damaris, I don't think they believed right away because it says they became followers of Paul and then they believed. But our evangelistic work is not measured by its results. We're not out to convert anybody. Jesus converts people, not us. We're out to make disciples, followers. And to do that, we need to hold Jesus up and say, hey, I'm reaching for him. Why don't you come with me and let's reach for him together. We know that God marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries and the lands of all people so that we would all seek God, reach out to him and find him. He is not far off. Let's pray.